Well, good morning, everyone. If you could go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of John. Uh, we are on John chapter 6. I believe this is our fourth message in John chapter 6. So if you've gone on vacation for a week or two or three and we're still in John 6, just so you know, we have moved ahead slightly, but we are still there. Uh, last week, we covered John 6 verses uh, 37 through 44. And there we took note that it is one of the most concentrated areas that we find the Reformed doctrines from the Protestant Reformation. Uh, sometimes they are given that acronym TULIP, uh, the total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Uh, we also took, took note to, to see those, of course, there in verse 37 in particular, verse, verse 39 and verse 44. They're just very, very uh, clear. If you look back at verse 37, uh, let me turn the page. Uh, verse 37, uh, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me uh, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And we took a moment to focus in on that, uh, that, that every person the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. We also took note to see that this is, this is, a, this is limited, this is specific, this is particular. He is giving a body of people to the Son, and all those given to the Son will come back to but will come to the Son. It is 100%. He loses none of them, and they will be raised up. Uh, we looked at verse 39 as well. Uh, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And just kind of connecting the dots to some of those doctrines last week, this, the P and tulip there, oftentimes called perseverance of the saints. As I mentioned, I prefer the preservation of the saints because it really points to the one that we should be giving glory for our perseverance, for our preservation. Uh, Ephesians 1, First uh, Peter 1, the, the Holy Spirit, right, is that seal that God has put in us, guaranteeing our inheritance that is to come. And so in that verse 39, he loses nothing of the body of people that he has given to the Son. There is no way, no possibility of losing salvation. And uh, lastly, we got into verse 44, but I'm going to read that today. Uh, with our passages uh, that we're going to be looking at today. It kind of keeps it in context. So if you would, go to verse 44 with me, and we're going to read through verse 59. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, 
not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us the bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, that we may feed upon, that we may believe in for our salvation, and that we can rest in knowing that we have eternal life and that we will be raised up on the last day. And if there is anyone here today that has not believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation, God, we pray that they would see him today as the only bread that can give eternal life, the only one who has the right and the power uh, to give eternal life. And may they put their faith in him today. Bring them to repentance of sin. Bring them to right belief today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look back at verse 44 there today, uh, I brought verse 44 in today because it's a great place to end last week's sermon, but it's also a great place to begin this week's sermon. So usually we go ahead an entire verse, right? But we're going to do a little bit of skip, skipping back to last week. So as we covered last week, 44 teaches the absolute, utter, total depravity of man. That's that T we get there in TULIP. We also took note that sometimes we like to change that now to total inability, meaning the same thing, but depravity is a little bit harder to define in our culture today. But it is sinfulness. We are born sinners. And as Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks after God. So sometimes we'll refer to that T as total inability. No one is seeking after God. We find that there in Romans 3.11, but of course in verse 44, right? Just read it kind of slowly there and you'll see, Let's see how many people will come to Christ on their own. And verse 44 answers it easily. No one can come to me. No one. So no one has the ability to do so. Total inability unless something has to happen here. And this is that supernatural birthing again, regeneration, the supernatural drawing of God. So unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So if no one seeks for God or has the ability to come to Jesus, how does anyone ever come to him? You may be sitting here today and say, wait, I came to Jesus. Uh, how did you get there? Well, the father drew you to the son. He opens your eyes. He opens your ears. He gives you a new heart. He, he, he draws you to him. All right. Now, this is not a general drawing of all humanity. Some in the more Arminian camp, those are kind of opposed to these Protestant uh, doctrines would say, well, this is a general drawing of all humanity, and God draws all people to himself. Looking back at verse 44, we know that that's not actually the case, right? Because of that passage in verse 44, um, how, how, what can, clarity can we get there? How do we know this is a limited or particular drawing? Uh, verse 44 is very clear. All whom the Father will come, uh, Father draws, will come to the Son, and they will be raised up. So you would either have to look at this, you'd either have to become a universalist saying that all people get to heaven or he is speaking about a particular limited isolated group of people that he is giving to the son. So it is 100%. And this passage is verse 37 through 44 as we looked at last week. There's, it's all in zeros and 100s. It's zero people can, no one can. He loses none, right? And it's, it's 100% of all those he gives to the Son will come to him, and the Son will raise up on the last day. He loses not one. So it's all zeros and 100s as we look at this. And even this passage in verse 44 is the same. Uh, no one God draws will fail to be raised on the last day. 
So God's calling is 100% effective for all he calls. And there we get things like irresistible grace, all right? You will come to the Father because he gives you the ability to come to him and you will not want to not come to him because you have a new heart, a new desire that he has implanted in you that you now desire to come to the Son. Now, look at verse 45 and keep verse 44 in mind because they're really tied to each other. Is it, it is written in the prophets, uh, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, Jesus adds to the existing list that we've kind of been going over, who all, that all whom the Father draws will come to him. They all will be raised up. But also here we find in verse 45, they all will be taught by God. And it's again, 100%. How many of the people that are taught by the Father come to Jesus? It's 100%. So this, this 37 now through 45 is all operating in zeros and 100. All right, so God the, God the Father uh, is, is going to give these people to the Son. Uh, all of those he's given to the Son will come to the Son. All those given to the Son or now coming to the Son are going to be raised up on the last day. And that same group, the same body, some theologians would call it the elect, that's fine. Bible refer, uses that term as well. Uh, these same people will all, 100% of them, be taught by God. Now this is, this is fascinating and something you may have taken for granted. It's spoken of much in the Old Testament I was finding six, for sure, uh, prophets who spoke about this supernatural internal teaching that all God's people receive. If you want to take quick note, we'll leave this slide up there for you for a moment. Uh, but there's six different places in the Old Testament where God speaks to a man, a prophet, who prophesies about the supernatural uh, teaching that is going to come with the new covenant of Jesus Christ. All right, there's going to be an internal supernatural teaching that all are going to be taught by God. One of the clearest, one of the most concise is Jeremiah 31. Please turn over there with me to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 44. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 44. So again, taking what we've just pulled from John, uh, we're finding out, yes, all those who come to the Son uh, are going to be taught by the Father. What does this teaching look like? All right, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 44. And here the prophet is uh, prophesying about the new covenant that is to come. Uh, the old covenant is going to be gone, is going to become obsolete. We've covered much of that in the book of uh, Hebrews, also uh, Colossians chapter 2. And there is going to be a new covenant, a better covenant, far superior covenant, because our covenant maker is Jesus Christ himself. If you recall, just quickly, uh, thinking back to the old covenant that God made with Israel, was Israel keeping that covenant very well? And the answer is absolutely not, right? The earth is always opening up and swallowing them shut, and, and God's bringing in armies to take them off to be captive, and their disease, plague is coming in, fires come. They're, they're always disobeying God and breaking the covenant. They're covenant breakers. What do we need in the new covenant? We need a new covenant maker, and that's Jesus Christ. Uh, so Jeremiah is prophesying about that coming new covenant that is so much greater, so much better 
than the Old Covenant. So look what he says here. And we're going to particularly uh, hone our ears on listening to this teaching, supernatural teaching, that's going to be taught to all who are in the New Covenant. Uh, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now this is amazing. You take this New Covenant passage, we've covered it quite a bit in the past. Uh, the author of Hebrews expounds upon it greatly there in, in Hebrews chapter 8. And uh, so we get to see, we get to interpret this passage in light of the New Testament after Jesus Christ has come. But even here, this is apparently what Jesus is referring back to. Uh, he is, this New Covenant, there was going to be an internal teaching uh, received by every single member of the New Covenant. This is something different than the Old Covenant. So what we're talking about here is 100% of those the Father has given to the Son that come to the Father, the Father draws to Him, that will be raised up on the last day, will be taught by the Father. Look back at verse 33 at some of these things. Uh, I will put my law within them. This is God speaking. This is to all those who are in this new covenant. Uh, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall... Each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So, verse 34, again, we look at this. How many of those in this new covenant are going to be taught by God and know the Lord? It's all. Again, we're talking in zeros and one hundreds, okay? It is 100% of those that are in this new covenant have been taught by God and they have received forgiveness of sins too there in verse 44. So it is 100%. Every single one of them that is in the new covenant. Now, who is the new covenant maker? Obviously, I've given that away early, but you already knew that, I hope. It in Luke 22, verse 20. Some days we use this for our Lord's Supper uh, passage. Jesus says, and likewise, the cup uh, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is, the, is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And we use Matthew today, which is basically saying the same thing. It just doesn't use the word new there in front of it. But he says it's the covenant that is made in my blood. But here Luke says this covenant, this is the covenant maker. Jesus is about to give his life, his body, his blood to make the covenant that we can rest fully in now that we are new covenant members. We've trusted in him. The new covenant has now come. That is far greater that is different than this old covenant. This means the new covenant has come. And if you are a Christian today, you are a member of that new covenant that Jeremiah was prophesying about and that you actually have been taught by God. So, have you been taught by God? Uh, if so, what does God, what has God taught you? All right? Now, remember this, verse 44 
And verse, verse 45 are connected. We've been studying in the youth, youth group, hermeneutics, you know, how to study the Word of God. And the best way to understand a verse is to read the verse before it, to read the verse after it. And if you want to get more clarity, it's to read the verses before that and, and underneath that, right? To read the Bible in context. And that's one reason we do expository teaching and preaching here, because you get the context of where you've been, and you're able to arrive where the author wants you to go. So verse 45 and verse 45 together, uh, it's it's... All those uh, that are going, that the Father is going to draw are going to come to the Son. But what does the drawing of the Father sound like? Uh, what does being educated by God involve? And it, this could be the answer, all right? The drawing consists of God's teaching a right view of sin and a right view of Jesus that leads to repentance and belief. So we're not talking about here of extra-biblical revelation from God that some, some professing Christians out there would, would uh, think that they're constantly receiving. We'll let Justin Peters teach on that next, this weekend, all right? Uh, but we're not talking about that. We're, the, it's specifically here, he is talking about those who are drawn to the Son have been taught by the Father. So if the drawing and the teaching are united in its one thing, all right, so it is a right view of Jesus Christ. You recall John 20, uh, where, where, uh, where John is giving the purpose statement of the book of John, right? These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's like he is writing these things so that we may believe. Uh, think, think of this, Matthew 16, go ahead and look it up, 15 through 17. Uh, here you have, where the disciples are gathered, and Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Very common passage, very common scene, you probably remember it. And there's a listing of all these things of, of what the people think out there, think that Jesus is, who they think he is. Is he Elijah the prophet? Is he Jeremiah? Maybe he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. And that all these things are, wow, that's really wonderful to be called Jeremiah, to be called Elijah, to be called John the Baptist. These were great men of God. Uh, great prophets of God, but it's all not enough, right? He's, he's way more than a man. He's God. And you look at Matthew 16, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus turns his focus to the disciples. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, take what we're learning there in the book of John. Take what we're learning over here in Jeremiah 31 as well. Who receives the credit for Peter's right belief about Jesus Christ? It is the Father. He does not look at Peter and say, Great job, Peter. Uh, let me pat you on the back. Congratulations. You know, you get five stars for the day. You did way better than the rest of these guys did. No, he says... Blessed are you, because my Father has revealed these things to you. Uh, so Peter's teacher, God the Father, gets the credit for that. Now, is this anything different than Jesus had been teaching them? No, it's the same teaching. Their teaching is in harmony, but it's kind of like when you share the gospel with someone. You can share the gospel with them, but until God does an internal work upon them, regenerating them, rebirthing them, causing their eyes to, uh, to open, their ears to hear, their heart to hear, to, to feel this message and to love this message, the, the gospel is on the outside. 
It takes an internal work. And here, even though Peter had been told over and over that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God in the flesh, here he announces it. Here he professes it, and he says, God the Father is your teacher. He has revealed this to you. Uh, consider Acts 13, verse 48. Acts 13, verse 48. Simply says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All right? So here we have God is sovereign over salvation still. Uh, the gospel is going out. And Luke simply records that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All right, so gospel went out. People believed. The, the ones who, the, he says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the point of this is, those God draws, he also brings to right belief in him. And we see that happening here in Acts 13, verse 48. Uh, all the, those who are appointed to eternal life believed and had right belief in the gospel that day. Not only does God cause a person to believe rightly with the supernatural teaching, regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ, but his inward teaching also brings about a right view of sin, and which causes conviction and repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. You, if you're already in Acts 13, just go back a couple of pages. And actually, I was going to read a little bit more of Acts uh, 11. Go back, look at verse... Again, this is one of those that's just... I want to get a little more context in. So go back, look at verse 11. <laughs> Acts... 11, no, go to verse 14. We'll skip to that. All right, Acts 11, verse 14. All right, go 13. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Doing an audible. All right. And he told us how he had been, how he had seen the angel stand. And, and by the way, this is Cornelius. This is Peter. He's been, Peter's now been brought before the Jerusalem council to give account why he would possibly go into a Gentile's house, much less eat with him. And it, supposedly they've, they've received the gospel now, and Peter's being called into account for all these things. This can't happen, you're with Gentiles. And so verse 13, And he told us how he, had been, how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So here we find that the angel is delivered to Cornelius, uh, this message, and, and now Peter has been told this, that, that he is supposed to, that Cornelius is sent to Peter's home, he's supposed to bring Peter back, Peter is going to proclaim a message, and by that message, the entire household is going to be saved. Uh, look at verse 15. As, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Then they heard, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So we look back at this passage, we see that God is supernaturally working to get the gospel to the home of Cornelius. This is the way God works, all right? Could, could the, he did not rely on the angel. God sent an angel to Cornelius. The, the angel, perhaps in our minds, could have shared the same message that Peter was supposed to share. That's not the way God had orchestrated it. He wanted Peter to come, proclaim the message, 
by this message, everyone in that house would believe. And we find that as Peter was preaching this message, that they all did believe and they all did receive the Holy Spirit. Then they all did repent. So we find that repentance, belief, and the Holy Spirit, all these are coming together with the gospel presentation there in the home of Cornelius. So according to that verse 18, if we look at that, uh, who gave the Gentiles the ability to repent that the Jews are rejoicing and giving God glory for? It's God, right? Uh, God did this. If you th what is repentance? Repentance is not just something we can do on our own. It is a right, correct view of sin, and it is to hate and forsake it because it is displeasing to God. In our natural selves, we love sin. The world loves sin. The parties, the, the, they party and celebrate sin. They invite more sinners around them. They have parades to celebrate their sin, etc., etc., all right? Rejoice, rejoice in this sin. That's who mankind is naturally. To hate sin and to forsake sin, to turn the other way, is an act of God upon a person's life. And here we see that they, the Jerusalem Council gives glory where glory is due. Not to the Gentiles, but who does he give it to? They give it back to God. Verse 18 says, Then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Uh, at salvation, God gives us a new heart with new desires, and this is part of the Father's teaching that I believe John is, that Jesus is talking about over here in John chapter 6. For the Father, all those he draws to the Son, gives them a right view, a right teaching, of who Jesus is and what he has done to provide salvation. And he also provides a right view of sin and the desire to hate and forsake that sin. Repentance, like belief, is a divine work of God upon all whom he draws. And, and also we see another, another uh, uh, more content, you might say, that, that the Father teaches also. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. And as you turn there, just to reflect on this, all whom the Father draws to the Son, number one, have right belief in Jesus, and number two, have a right view of sin and repentance from sin. If someone says they are a Christian, but they are still saying that God is, uh, that Jesus is not God, uh, that person, according to John, is an antichrist. All right? if, they, if they say that I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he is the Messiah, that's, that's not saving belief. You don't get to define Jesus. Those who the Father draws, draws them with a right belief, a right gospel to Jesus. And they also have a desire, a hatred of sin, and want to repent of that sin. If you say that you are a believer, and intellectually you have the information there, but you're still living in unrepentant sin, this is not a mark of a true believer. All right? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10. What does God, God say that we all have been taught by God here? Look at this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. You might underline that, you might circle that, highlight it, whatever it is. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So what exactly did God teach them? To love one another. So God, we see that God not only gives us repentance, 
and gives us belief, but he also gives believers the desire to love other believers in a way that they did not do so before salvation. And, and, th and this, this, this inner, inside, in, uh, internal education, God brings you to a right belief in the gospel that you might have heard for years. But then one day you're like, wow, this is true. It's not only true, but it's true for me. And my faith is now in Jesus Christ for my salvation. And you see your sin completely differently, right? And you've, you can look back on your own life and perhaps witness such a thing where now you're saved and you try to do what you used to do, but out of habit or whatever, and you're like, wait a minute, this feels different now. Why is that different now? Because you have been taught in a way by God that you did not have before where you now hate these things because it's displeasing to God, right? I remember years ago, my quickest example that comes to mind is my brother witnessed to his neighbor. He used to get drunk every single night, cuss up a storm. It's what the guy did all the time. And he invited my brother over there. And, and one night, one evening before all that happened, my brother witnessed to the guy. And uh, the next day, he gets a phone, my brother gets a phone call, and the man's like, what happened to me? What did you do to me? And he's like, what do you mean? He says, ah, I went to get drunk last night, and it just felt horrible. I was so, I, I didn't feel right, and it always feels right. And then I started to talk to my friends like I usually do, and I, I, and I couldn't do it. And it's like, what happened to me? And he's like, what you're describing is salvation. It's, it's a new heart. You have a new mouth. You have new desires now that weren't there before, right? It's, and that's supernatural. That's not something you just do on your own. He has been taught by God. An inside work, regeneration has happened, and now the old is gone, the new has come, and now sanctification begins, right? Where you're getting rid of all those things. Uh, look at John 13. Verse 34 through 35, we've covered that passage a lot, but this love of others is so, it's, it's so 100% supposed to be of believers that this becomes the outward mark of who believers are so that we can know one another. So if you are a believer today, you are also a repenter, and these things come together. Some theologians will call them uh, each one side of a two-sided two coin, right? You can't have belief without repentance. You can't have repentance without belief. True salvation involves both of these things, but also you need to put something on the edges of that coin that says love of brothers, all right? Maybe a three-sided coin, because all three of these things come together, and, and we all have been taught these inside, internally. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wow. So this is so connected to the people that come to Christ that he says, all will know you by the way that you love one another. And this is one, I mean, this is, you're here today, hopefully not just out of habit, although it's a good habit to come to church, right? Uh, you're here today because you are a believer, because you are a repenter, you hate sin, uh, but also because you love one another. And that's why we encourage everyone who comes to our church, please don't, be a, be, don't just sit, be entertained, or watch me and then leave and call that church, right? Uh, that is an aspect of church, an element of church, the teaching and preaching of God's word and worshiping him. 
but the love of others. You need to be in an environment where you can receive the love of others and where you can give love to others as well. Not that one hour, two hours, some of you three hours on Sunday morning is enough or sufficient or that's all and you put a check in the box and say, I'm done with loving others this week, right? I received plenty. I'm done now. But it, but it is a convenient time, right? We come together. We see one another. We enjoy one another. We take Lord's Supper together. Uh, today we're having pot providence together. Just more time. Why do we do such a thing? Not just to see minutes go by on the clock, but because we love one another. And this is where we receive love. It's where we give love. Now, you can do that all throughout the week. But for many of you, you're working secular jobs. You're working with people who are of the world. There's darkness all around. And you look so forward to this time where you get to be in the light. And you get to receive love. Be around people who see sin rightly. Who see Jesus rightly. And you, it's beautiful. You walk in the door and there might be a smile on your face. Or you might feel down because of things in your life and you need to minister too. But you've come to the right place, right? So it's wonderful to come with, be with other believers. Because there's a love there that was not there before you were saved. So all whom the Father draws will repent of sin, believe in Christ, and love one another. A lack of right belief, living in unrepentant sin, and not having Christ-like love for one another, are, uh, for other Christians, are marks of unbelief. All right, uh, Those who say, I am a Christian, I just don't like other Christians. Uh, read John 13, 34 through 35, please, right? <laughs> it's like that, that's probably not a, not a Christian. You're saying you, you love God, but you hate the, the brothers and sisters in Christ. So what we find is all these things need to be there. So this is the internal thing that God, all those who he, he works in, he brings them to right belief, he brings them to a right view of sin, brings them to repentance, and brings them to a love for one another that did not exist before they were saved. All right, let's look at verse 46. And the rest of this, by the way, will flow faster. There's lots of repetition in John 6, and especially in the passages we're covering today. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And verse 46 is just a kind of a point of clarity uh, that they should not... This, this, this teaching the Father is giving, they should not be expecting to see the Father, uh, but, but He has entrusted the teaching to the Son. So the Son has been sent by the Father, and their, their teaching is in perfect harmony. Uh, the Father has authenticated the, the Son, remember, by the signs, uh, the supernatural signs, miracles, and wonders that Jesus, Jesus was performing just like with several prophets there in the past, Elijah, Elisha, and Moses, uh, God authenticated and validated that prophet and the message that was going forth. So the message of God the Father is the message of God the Son. So they should not be expecting to see God the Father, but they should be listening to the Son. Verse 47, uh, what is Jesus teaching them? What is the Father teaching them? Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, verse chapter 6, there's so many times where Jesus says, truly, truly. And again, it's like a doubling down. It's an extra emphasis that, yes, I am being dogmatically clear and concise. Pay attention. Listen. It's kind of like putting exclamation points all over it, all right? It's truly, truly. And he brings it all down. He says, I say to you, 
Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So again, teaching the exclusivity that I am it. There is no other way. Uh, it's kind of like a John 14, 6, where I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This verse is very similar to that. Whoever believes, and what is he talking about? Belief, not just this general belief in anything. He's talking about believing in him. That's why in verse 48 he says, I am the bread of life. All this is tying in back to, remember this whole chapter has been on the bread. Uh, it starts off with a supernatural sign where Jesus feeds the thousands with hardly anything. They chase him down. They want more bread. They don't want salvation. They don't want to repent of their sins. They don't have a right view of Jesus, even though they called him, uh, they wanted him to be king, even though they called him the prophet that Moses had prophesied about, even though they have called him the rabbi, uh, the teacher. When Jesus begins to teach, you must believe to have eternal life. I am the bread of life, far greater than the manna that God gave your forefathers in the desert. They all died. I, what I give you will give eternal life, right? Uh, are they eager to believe? They are not. Let's continue on. Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. So here Jesus continues this metaphorical analogy of comparing himself to the manna that God gave to the Israelites. Remember, they were in the desert. There was no food. They were grumbling like they always do against God and against Moses. God provides for them supernatural food from heaven that's there on the ground every morning except on the Sabbath. And they were supposed to get two days of food before that. So Jesus is now saying, you want more food. And that's all they come for. They've, ch they've seen the signs. They've seen the great feeding. They've chased him down across the sea. They've showed up again. It's been about 12 hours. And guess what? We are hungry again. And they're in a big city. They could go get whatever they want to eat, but they don't want to do that. They're going to him. Feed us, feed us, feed us. He's like, you're missing the whole point. He knows all too well. Life is temporary. It's so temporary. Your life is but a vapor that appears and disappears. And whether you live 10 years, 5 years, 100 years, don't get much further than that, right? It's like, that's it. That's such a small amount. They just want food. They just want food. And he's like, you don't understand. I have not come to just give you bread, to be the eternal bread man, just to be here for you every time you're hungry. But that's what they want. He says, no, what I can provide you is far greater. I can provide you eternal life because I am the bread that has been sent down from heaven. Eat of me. In other words, believe in me. And you will have not just life, but eternal life. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here in verse 51, we see an expansion of who is going to be fed this supernatural bread. If you think back to the Old Testament, who ate bread 40 years in the desert? It, were the, it was the Israelites, right? Those that came out of, out of Egypt. Uh, but notice in verse 51, there's a great expansion. Uh, no longer is the bread just for the Israelites, but it is for the entire world. So that's one reason we read Acts 13 today and Acts, Acts 11 today, where we see that, whoa, the Gentiles can be saved? 
Even the, to, to the Gentiles, God has granted belief, the Holy Spirit, and repentance of sin. So notice that Jesus doesn't say, I am the bread and I will give for the life of the Israelites or to the nation of Israel. He says, to the world, this is my flesh. Now, does this world, the use of the word world statement, counter uh, limited atonement or particular redemption or definite atonement? Uh, that was covered in verse 39 and verse 39. And the answer is no. All right, uh, The word world here is used by John to mean without ethnic distinction. He is not giving his flesh to all of the world, but he is giving to it with, to the world without ethnic distinction, without saying this is just for Israel. The Old Testament, God fed Israel supernaturally from heaven. They ate the manna. Gentiles did not. Jesus has now come. I am giving my flesh for the world, all right? Not just the Israelites. Now, how do the Jews respond to this teaching? I am the bread. I am the only way to eternal life, right? This, it's me. It's me. You must believe in me. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And just as they grumbled earlier, he teaches some more, he clarifies, he doubles down on his point, me, you must believe in me. And they grumble and grumble more and more. Even though they had called him a king, wanted him to be the king right then and there, they had referred to him as the rabbi, the teacher they should listen to, they had referred to him as the prophet, which Deuteronomy 18 says you must listen to that prophet or you will die, but instead they argue with him and they argue with his teaching. This is not a sign of right belief. Uh, verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. And, and looking back at the passage we just read, going to five quick clarification points here that Jesus brings out, all right? Verse 53, if you do not eat of Jesus, you have no life. If you do not eat of him. And, and this is, a, again, it's a metaphorical analogy. It's not literally saying we take a bite of Jesus, all right? But he is comparing to that bread, right? If the Israelites did not eat of the manna that was sent from heaven, they would die. That's the only food that, that God was giving them to, to live. It was supernatural. They had to eat it to live. But now, the, what that was just, just a, a type of, a shadow of, the ultimate has come for eternal life, and they must eat of him, his blood, his body, right? Uh, if you do not eat of him, you have no life. Uh, number two, if you do eat of him, you have eternal life. Verse 54, verse 54 also, if you do not eat of him, sorry, if you do eat of him, you will rise on the last day. I think this is the fourth time, and just a quick, if you go back to starting at verse 37, that God, Jesus has mentioned this, that it's, it's, you must believe in him and he will raise you up on the last day. That last day, that you will be raised with him, guaranteed. So those who eat of him, those who believe in him, 100% chance they will be raised. Uh, four, eating of him is the only true food and true drink that will give eternal life. Everything else is not. Nothing else can. No one else can. It's him and him alone. 
Uh, this, and this is really, if you uh, go ahead and turn there, we have a quick moment. Isaiah 55. Turn to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. And there's lots of the teaching of Jesus that is drawing from the Old Testament, that is drawing from the prophets. And, and w even with the, the Samaritan woman at the well, we, we saw that fountain of life that Jesus is, that he was offering to her, and how that comes over from Isaiah, comes over from the Old Testament. Even here where Jesus is talking about feeding and drinking on him, how important this is, and how... It is the exclusive it is. There's nothing else they can feed on or drink on to get eternal life. But look, look, at, look at Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah says, and this is, uh, he's prophesying, this is of God. He says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. And the point of this is Isaiah, uh, the, the, God is saying, it's not the temporary food and the temporary drink. You should come to me, listen to the teaching Rest in me, believe in me. And this, this same concept is brought over here to Jesus, to them. They've come to him for more literal food. And he's saying, no, listen to me. Listen to what I have to offer. Be satisfied. Incline your ear. Come to me that your soul may live. Right? They're spiritually dead. All right. Uh, turn back over to John. Uh, John chapter 6. Lastly there in verse 56 uh, we have one more point of clarification. If you do not eat of him, you will be, if you do eat of him, sorry, you will be permanently united with Christ. It's verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. This is a beautiful, wondrous mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. But if you have eaten of Jesus Christ, if you have believed in him for your salvation, uh, this is true of you. Uh, you abide in him and he in you. That's why our, our salvation is so secure. Because there, there's nothing that can break this bond. You have been bonded. You have been united with. You're abiding in Christ and he in you in such a way that this is now inseparable. That's why you will be raised up on the last day. Uh, look on at verse 57 through 59. This is basically a repetition of the previous passage. It's, it's, chapter 6 is just over and over, repetition, repetition, repetition. One of the reasons is we learn by repetition. Uh, verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now, in summary, looking over the passages that we've looked at here today, we see that verse, the whole entire chapter is connected, but we definitely see that, that the supernatural teaching that comes from God, it ties in to all those that are going to come to the Son, the Father is going to draw to the Son, or the ones the Father gave to the Son, are the very same ones the Father is going to raise up on the last day. And they're also the very ones that the Father has taught 
And all those are within this new covenant, and they have all been taught by God. They have a right view of who Jesus is. They have a right view of sin and desire to turn from that sin. And they also, as we see, they love one another. And this is a supernatural teaching of God. And if that is you today, you should say, thank you, God, for teaching me what I could not teach myself. Right? It's, it's, it's amazing that God has done this for you. And so uh, then he just continues on to the exclusivity. This is the bread. There is no other bread. This is the bread. The only way to eternal life is through me. You must eat and feed on me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made salvation extremely clear so that if anyone is here today, they did not have to think and wonder and pontificate on different ways to try to get to heaven, that we can know for sure absolutely that Jesus is the only one. Just like those in the desert had to eat of the manna in order to live, anyone in the world today has to eat on Jesus Christ, feed on his body, feed on his blood, believe in him for their salvation, and trust in him and him alone. God, we thank you that even though there is no one who has the ability to come to Christ in and of ourselves, there is no one who has the, our own ability to truly see sin as bad as it is and to repent from it and change our own hearts and to change our own desires, but you supernaturally do that. Help us to not take that for granted, but to give you glory for such a thing. We thank you, God, for opening our eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is, to opening our ears so that we could hear that gospel the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, and to see it rightly, to hear it rightly. We thank you for giving us a new heart that desires to come to you. And God, we at the same time pray for anyone who's listening today who may have arrived here, who these things are still foreign. God, we pray that you would move inside of them to bring them to a right understanding of Jesus and to a right view of their sin and a desire to turn from that sin. Bring them into the body of Christ and help them to love the body of Christ, to love other believers, Lord, and help us all to be better in these areas. Help us, Lord, to, to love one another and help our love for one another to be so clear, so obvious, this sacrificial love, as Jesus has loved us, we love one another, that the entire world looks in and goes, what kind of love is this? That they love each other so deeply so sacrificially, with everything that they have. And God, we thank you that we have such a sweet, wonderful gathering and that we are able to gather together today and throughout the week and to love one another and receive love from others that you have brought to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray.